The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Oh, good evening. And um, so you know, today is the day we're celebrating Martin Luther King's Jr.'s, I suppose it's his birthday, but his day. And uh, it's my favorite national holiday. Um, I think it's the only, as far as I know, the only religious person that has gotten such a prominent recognition in our culture to have a holiday. And uh, after him, and um, it's kind of nice to have, occasionally have religious heroes as opposed to models or other, or other people who get prominent treatment in the media. The, um, and um, so this morning I was, um, I opened up the news and uh, sure enough there were the first article that I saw was about Martin Luther King. But then uh, two articles away was an article about the Oxfam report that just came out. And uh, based on data they acquired from the, the Swiss bank, Credit Suisse, that said that, um, the kind of eye-catching, they said that there are 80 individuals in the world, only 80, there's probably more of us there here than 80, evening, but 80 people who possess more wealth than uh, the 50% of the uh, world population that's, you know, the lowest amount of income. So 50% 50 who are poorest in the world have less money than 80 individuals. Isn't that remarkable? And then, um, you know, and then there's this 1% thing. They, they have this wonderful graph and they're tracking how it changes over time, over the last 10 years or so. But in the, um, they said that, uh, can you hear okay? Is it loud enough for everyone? Okay. So they said that, um, I guess in the 2014, I think that's the, the year, that 1% um, of the population of the world which is about 72 million people. There's a lot of folks, but still, there's a lot more people. To, uh, so 1% uh, or so have 48% um, of the wealth. And the rest of people have 52%. But if you take the top 20% of the wealth, the top, the 20% of the people with the most wealth in the world, they, owe, they have 94.5% of the wealth. So in other words, 80% of the world population uh, gets to divvy up among themselves 5.5% uh, uh, of world wealth. So, you know, I hope they have a good time with it. 
you know, it's kind of sad. <clears throat> and so, and that income inequality is growing in the last few years. And for a number of reasons, the people who are wealthy, their wealth grows faster than the money of the people who are poor. So it's quite something to kind of read these, you know, see Martin Luther King, and then see this article. Because Martin Luther King, um, uh, after the, the, um, you know, he worked on voters' rights, getting African Americans to vote. He then uh, changed his focus at the end of his life, direction towards uh, income inequality in this country and poverty. That became one of his big drives. And he said that um, now we were, he said we were in the civil rights era and now we're in the human rights era. And so, and then he had very important things. He said that um, racism in our country is uh, not an isolated phenomena, but it cannot be addressed without uh, addressing economic issues and militarism. And uh, back then, the Vietnam War was big, and uh, and he was quite concerned. He saw a direct connection between the money being spent on the Vietnam War and uh, the the fight for poverty in this country. And Martin Luther King um, had to have a holiday after him is a wonderful thing. It can be inspiring if we study him. But you know, he was a pretty radical person. And his message was, uh, and he, he wasn't, uh, he didn't shy away from stirring things up. You know, he, he wasn't like polite, exactly. Uh, though he had, uh, I don't know if that's the right language of it, but uh, he, uh, his approach to nonviolent civil disobedience uh, was to uh, force himself on people so they wouldn't have to, so they have to deal with it. And, uh, and so it, even though he was a, apostle of, of nonviolence and peace in a certain kind of way, he wasn't avoiding conflict. And if, in fact, he was willing to step into conflict. And the cost on him uh, was quite, um, I think was huge. Uh, one thing I read, I don't know if this is the best measure of the cost, but uh, after he was assassinated, there was an autop- autopsy done. And um, and it was, the report said that uh, this 39-year-old man had a heart of a 60-year-old. And the idea being that he lived under tremendous stress. And then, um, you know, some of the stories is he collapsed under that stress sometimes because of the death threats that he received. So he started getting death threats when he was 26. And then it continued. And... Um, and there are, uh, I've seen photographs of him, you know, of, uh, of uh, photographs show him being, being um, hit in the head with bricks and rocks and being forced down across uh, police cars or across police, uh, uh, the, uh, what is police uh, station desks as he's being arrested. And, um, you know, it was quite, uh, the FBI was after him. Boy, were they after him. And, uh, I mean, that's a pretty, you know, had the FBI to be kind of a person vendetta, I mean, that's kind of a, must be a stressful thing. And um, 
so you know he 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 put himself in situations where he didn't shy away from conflict. In fact, one of the interesting things he said is that um, uh, he said something like that: um, the real impediment to progress he felt was not the Ku Klux Klan, but were were moderate white people who uh, didn't want to upset the order. You know, just do everything politely, do everything kind of just do everything kind of follow the right, the right procedures and everything will be okay. And, uh, and his letter from the Birmingham jail was a response to that very issue. Powerful letter. Many years ago, uh, when I was a Zen student, my Zen teacher said that the Buddha taught the world the importance of sitting, meditation. And Gandhi taught the world it was important where you sat. And so, you know, and I've known people, I have friends who sat on, you know, I literally sat down and meditated on train tracks, you know, when they were uh, to block, you know, the transport of nuclear weapons. And, and um, so where do we sit? Or where do we sit with our heart? What do we open to? What do we pay attention to in this world of ours? And, uh, and how much of the world do we see as our world? I think one of the important legacies of someone like Martin Luther King is to see the whole world as our family. He said that after he got the Nobel Peace Prize, that he um, then now felt he had responsibility for people outside the United States. and He was champion for their cause as well. And that was one of the reasons why uh, he did. He opposed the Vietnam War, and you know nowadays maybe it seems like what that you know. Everyone should have opposed the Vietnam War. Now that we know more what was went on, but when he did, um, a lot of people turned their backs on him. A lot of people felt that he shouldn't oppose the war, that he should keep his focus on the civil rights and and all that. So I want to play for you um, seven minutes of a speech by. Martin Luther King. I think that's probably the respectful thing to do is let him speak for himself. And um, it's uh, from a, a very famous speech called Beyond, Beyond Vietnam, which I think I gave in 1967. And um, though I have some doubts whether this is, uh, this little clip is really f- completely from this. I think so, whoever made it, it's on YouTube, right? It looks, I think it's, it doesn't, doesn't correspond with the full text that I read of the speech. So I wondered if got, you know, kind of spliced together different parts of it, but it's still, still him, and it's, it's kind of quite interesting. And, and it's interesting to read his, hear his rationale for why he opposes the Vietnam War. And I think a lot of what he has to say is uh, painfully relevant for our society today. So we'll see if this works. If I just, uh, you know, put the mic in front of the computer. Time has come for America to hear the truth about this tragic war. I've chosen to preach about the war in Vietnam today because I agree with Dante that the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in a period of moral crisis 
maintain their neutrality. There comes a time when silence is betrayal. Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war. Now, of course, one of the difficulties in speaking out today grows out of the fact there are those who are seeking to equate dissent with disloyalty. It's a dark day in our nation when high-level authorities will seek to use every method to silence dissent. There is at the outset a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor so long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. You may not know it, my friends, but it is estimated that we spend $500,000 to kill each enemy soldier while we spend only $53 for each person classified as poor. And much of that $53 goes for salaries to people who are not poor. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and attack it as such. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Holland. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schoolroom. And I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, 
my own government. There's something strangely inconsistent about a nation and a press that will praise you when you say be nonviolent toward Jim Clark, but will curse and damn you when you say be nonviolent toward little brown Vietnamese children. There will be no meaningful solution until some attempt is made to know these people and hear their broken cry. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. And I only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. Let me say finally that I oppose the war in Vietnam because I love America. I speak out against this war not in anger, but with anxiety and sorrow in my heart, and above all with a passionate desire to see our beloved country stand as the moral example of the world. I speak out against this war because I'm disappointed with America. And there can be no great disappointment where there is no great love. I'm disappointed with our failure to deal positively and forthrightly with the triple evils of racism, economic exploitation, and militarism. We are presently moving down a dead-end road that can lead to national disaster. It is time for all people of conscience to call upon America to come back home. God has a way of standing before the nations with judgment, and it seems that I can hear God saying to America, you are too arrogant. I haven't lost faith because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We shall overcome because the Bible is right. You shall reap what you sow with this faith. We will be able to speed up the day when all over the world we will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. With Men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations will not rise up against nations, neither shall they study war anymore and i don't know about you i ain't gonna study war no more so um he talks about it being an act of love his disappointment. One of the things that came in my reading of his speeches and his writings was um, he seemed to be very devoted to some of the ideals that the United States is built on. And, uh, you know, he was 
uh, in love with it. It was very meaningful for him and he was trying to uh, let everyone uh, share in those dreams, share in those rights, share in that vision that uh, he saw as a foundation for this country. And the idea of everyone, the idea that um, we're family all together, that we're connected, that uh, somehow can we get out of our self-centered life or our self-contained life and become aware of the people who uh, we share this life with and care about them. And learning to care for everyone, I hope, is a consequence of settling, seeing ourselves, and opening up uh, our hearts. The uh, talk, the, the speech we listened to, uh, you know, was very much sounded like a preacher. But in that, it's a much longer speech, the Beyond Vietnam. And uh, since he kind of ended with uh, this part, at least with this, you know, quote from the Bible and stuff, re- reference to it, um, I thought that uh, he, ha- he actually quotes in the speech from um, uh, Vietna- Vietnamese Buddhist teachers. And uh, I don't know, it could be Thich Nhat Hanh, for all we know. Um, let's see if... Oh, here it is, this year. He doesn't say who it's from, but so this is a, this is the message of the great Buddhist leaders of Vietnam. Recently, one of them wrote these words: "Each day, the war goes on. The hatred increases in the heart of the Vietnamese, and in the hearts of those of humanitarian instinct. The Americans are forcing even their friends into becoming their enemies." It is curious that Americans who calculate so carefully on the possibility of military victory do not realize that in the process they are incurring deep psychological and political defeat. The image of America will never again be an image of revolution, freedom, and democracy, but an image of violence and militarism. So, you know, since the Vietnam War, America has been involved in wars, just almost, you know, continuously. And to have, be in conversations about the justice of the war, uh, wars, the appropriateness of the wars, that's gets things that are very complicated. Um, and we can be in all kinds of disagreements about what has to happen. But uh, I think it's very tragic that the conversation always focuses, almost always focuses on um, the wars that are occurring. And the conflict between what we should do and shouldn't do happens around the question about the current war. Um, uh, let's stop the next war. Can we stop the next war? What, is, what are the causes and conditions that we need to take, into, into a, uh, take care of now so that we don't have more wars? And one of the causes of, of war all over the world is economic inequality. The people who feel like they can't get, uh, make any advances, they can't make a life for themselves. And so, how do we take care of that? How do we, as a nation, take care of it? And coincidentally, the hints, the suggestions, is that uh, our president is going to address this issue tomorrow. So that's kind of nice. I hope we listen. I hope he has something good to say, and I hope that he's able to, you know, stand upright in the face of the blistering opposition that he'll receive. The blistering opposition. 
You know, so the last thing I'll say about Martin Luther King, his bl the blistering opposition. Um, I'll say it this way, maybe some of you were here. A few years ago, on a Monday night, I think it was Alan Sonaki, who's a Buddhist teacher in Berkeley, gave a talk on Martin Luther King. And he asked that uh, evening if uh, anybody had ever seen Martin Luther King or knew him or kind of... And, um, and the man that I know, known for years, has been part of this group for a long time, very nice man, lovely, sweet man, and I would trust deeply, uh, said, oh yes, uh, I was there, uh, the, I guess it was the march, the, the Selma march, they walked right by my house. And uh, I stood on my porch with my buddies and cursed him. Quite something, huh? So it was quite so, you know, he's come a long way since then. Uh, you know, to be able to admit it was quite something. But, uh, and you know, you see some of these photographs, some of the f film footages of the time of the white people who were protesting against the protesters. And uh, the hate and the spite that they carried, the level of hostility and hate that people are capable of in this world, even to this day, right? I mean, what's going on in Europe and all kinds of places is quite strong. So how do we address hate? How do we, how do we stop the next war? How do we stop the next wave of this kind of hate? Um, how do we live our lives so we make a difference for the future? Or as Thich Nhat Hanh said, how do we live our lives now so that a future is possible? And is it only someone else's responsibility? It's those 80 people. They better, those 80 people better do something <laughs> about their wealth. <laughs> So the, I kind of celebrate Martin Luther King Day in memory of his radicalism, his revolutionary radicalism, which uh, was stirring things up. And he continued to do that right to the end. And was, you know, was, the thing that he was working on most, most in the last couple of years of his life was poverty. And, uh, and I celebrate that he did it with a beautiful heart, even though it was 60 years old. Beautiful uh, devotion and love, friendship to a lot of people. And um, I think we're lucky to have people who stir things up, that force us to ask questions, force us to study, to look more deeply. Because if we're all, it's too easy to be complacent, too easy to kind of like, oh, everything's okay, and okay enough. But things are not okay. And, uh, and the way that all these issues are connected, I think is very important to appreciate. The, the issue of certainly racism is still an issue in our society, but it's, it's connected to economic inequality. Exactly a connection to militarism right now, I'm not so sure. It's more obvious in the Vietnam time. Um, but I'm sure there's a connection, the way he talked about money being spent on that rather than bettering people. And then to add uh, to this list, uh, I think that gender, in gender inequality is also still a huge issue in our society. And, um, you know, uh, how many women are in that group of 80? I think very few. And, um, 
and I think until we have a little bit more equ uh, equality in many different ways, you know, I, there's a lot of work to be done. And I put my hope the most in uh, the goodness of people's hearts. And uh, so if we could find how really, really uncover and give voice to the goodness in our hearts and let that become in the forefront and not to act with hostility, not to act with anger. Martin Luther King said, I'm, I'm not angry, he said. But to, to, to you know, come with the best of our hearts. But, but don't, be, don't be the kind of good person who doesn't <coughs> challenge the status quo. Be the, have your goodness. Uh, it makes a difference where you sit with your goodness. It makes a difference who you take into your heart, who you become aware of, what you know. This morning I, was, I went to Trader Joe's. And as I was leaving, uh, I was walking by, I guess, the delivery <coughs> door where they had these big, big door where trucks come and stuff. And there was a somewhat beat up old SUV, um, or a van, not an SUV, like a van. And, um, and they were carrying all this, what looked to me like uh, unsold, probably expired food bread and all kinds of stuff and just in bags and putting it in the back of this van. So I asked, uh, uh, you know, uh, where is this going? And the man said, it's going to a shelter here in Redwood City on Spring Street. Go on the uh, Second Harvest website and read with their statistics for how many people are hungry in Silicon Valley. There's a lot of people who are hungry in one of the richest communities in the country. You don't have to go very far to find challenges. But, you know, we, you know we're busy with our lives and don't notice what goes on. I get a little snippet walking past Trader Joe's and asking, you know, what was that? Where, where's this going? Where is this going? Right here to Redwood City. So, any of you meet Martin Luther King? Yes, what's your story? Yeah, but your story. I think you'd say better, not in the general sense. My first experience So I voted for Barry Goldwater in 64, but it was also the year <laughs> that I started teaching in the Chicago ghetto. And uh, so I was lucky enough to really experience what was going on on a first-hand basis and became a pretty majorly liberal person politically and so on, economically. But anyway, he spoke at the uh, Chicago City um, Symphony Hall on Michigan Avenue. And the power was so palpable in that room, it probably has maybe seating for 1,500 or something people. And I just remember that the, the walls felt sort of like they were pulsating. I mean, the whole place was just hugely electric with his amazing oratory. Uh-huh. Great. Thank so you. So I feel very grateful for that experience. My kids would wear three hats. or Sometimes they'd 
they were from Mother Cabrini Green, which has now been leveled, a project. And there were no locks on the doors, so whatever they cared about, they had to bring with them to school. Mm. So multiple coats or multiple hats mm, or whatever. Wow. That was in 64. Anybody else? Yes, Trudy. Well, in the early 60s, I was a part of the Catholic Interracial Council in San Francisco. And after uh, Bloody Sunday, uh, the word went out that people were needed to come and stand and, and march with the, with the black people. And so the bishop invited us to go. And we did, there were six of us in my group and we did a march with Martin Luther King and we heard him speak on the steps of Brown's Chapel before we started the march. And um, I was just thinking about the fact that I learned in Selma that staying alive is not the most important thing. Mm, great, thank you. Anybody else? I feel very much like you blessed this building by having a talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can use the mic, otherwise people can't hear. Good evening. Um, no, I have not encountered Martin Luther King personally, but there is actually a fact about him that is often mistaught in schools. And as someone earning a social science credential, I wanted to, I learned it in my urban ed and social justice program at USF, which is that the March on Washington wasn't about civil rights. It's often mistaught in schools in this country uh -huh. that the main thrust of that march was right. about civil rights. It wasn't. If you look closely at the photographs and the signs that people are holding, it was about the right to have jobs. Mm. I see, yeah. Uh, the, um, well, you know, it's a kind of a convenient thing to only remember the civil rights part. Because exactly. It, because it's less uh, disturbing. It's less challenging. Right. Because the civil rights was taken care of. That, that was settled, wasn't it? Right. <laughs> or that somehow the two were connected and that's too complicated yeah. of a conversation to have with our children. Uh -huh. And so it's been simplified in a lot of our curriculums. And so I felt that since you mentioned that that yeah. was really what he worked yeah. for, it, that it, really what the March yeah. on Washington was about. I know he was planning a second March on Washington in 68 uh, that was specifically focusing on economics economic inequality, but uh, it kind of happened, but it, he, he was assassinated before it, before that march happened. They built a shanty town on the mall, Washington and the Lincoln Mall. So, um, I hope that um, those of you who are engaged in Buddhist practice, mindfulness practice, that uh, it's, my, it's my really my heartfelt hope in being a teacher and offering this is that somehow the practice doesn't just make us you know, more 
happy or settled or peaceful in ourselves, but really makes us uh, agents for change, that we support the change and make it our lives and make a difference for the lives of others and make this a better world. And it begins by learning about it and opening up and seeing what goes on around you. And um, who knows what you'll see outside of Trader Joe's if you look. It's, you know, anyway, what I, mean by, what I mean by that, in the small details of your life, things pop out and you can see. Pay attention to your neighbors and your friends and fellow citizens. Notice what goes on and then see what, how your heart responds. So thank you all this evening and uh, wish you well.